Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's show, we are going to begin by discussing two cases involving access to non-discrimination protections under the Affordable Care Act. Then we'll talk about a criminal legal case involving the murder of a transgender individual in Texas. Finally, I will discuss a Massachusetts High Court case involving equal access to jury service for LGBTQ people. With us, as always, is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. Okay, okay. <laughs> Lots of stuff happening. You know, usually, uh, August is a pretty slow month for the courts, but they, they were just spewing out so many opinions. Uh, we have a, uh, a plethora of cases to select from for this issue. Right, and there's such a range of, um, the decisions really touch on um, every aspect of LGBTQ life and experience. I mean, from healthcare to criminal legal issues to discrimination in the workplace, religious exemptions. It's just all over the map, and and the way that we cover it is, and and the way that you cover it for Law Notes is just fantastic. We had a really hard time even picking three cases to highlight for folks, and I'm going to drop a link to um, the full uh, edition of Law Notes so folks can check it out and see some of the other important um, cases that we didn't get a chance to discuss. But let's go ahead and start with um, the first uh case, which is actually two cases that we're combining. Um, and it's an update for folks on an issue that we've talked about before. Um, and the notorious district court judge, Reed O'Connor, who has issued nationwide injunctions blocking every progressive uh, statute or rule uh, that comes before him. And um, in this instance, it's a challenge uh, to the Department of Health and Human Services that they can't enforce certain aspects of 1557 of the Affordable Care Act uh, as they relate to uh, transgender people and uh, preventing discrimination in healthcare. Fortunately, this case is, is the ruling is narrow. Um, and we'll get into that, the specifics there. And then we're gonna also talk about um, the Massachusetts case that involves the same section, um, but is a totally different uh, outcome. So Art, can you put these two cases together for us and unpack what's going on? Okay, well, they both derive from the same backstory. And that is when the Affordable Care Act was passed, Congress decided to put in a non-discrimination provision but the non-discrimination provision doesn't list the prohibited grounds. What they do is they say, you can't discriminate on any ground prohibited by the following federal statutes. And one of those statutes is Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, which forbids discrimination by educational institutions that get federal money on the basis of sex or because of the sex of, uh, of the individual. And that mainly concerns the rights of students not to be discriminated based on their sex. Uh, but it's incorporated by reference as one of the forbidden grounds for discrimination under Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. So uh, that went into effect in 2014. President Obama signed it into law, I believe it was in 2012, and then it went into effect in 2014. 
Uh, and then the Department of Health and Human Services issued a, uh, an opinion in 2016, actually building on an opinion by the Department of Education, which was dealing with lawsuits by transgender students, the Gavin Grimm case in particular, which led them to take the position that the ban on sex discrimination under Title IX covers gender identity. And so then, because Title IX is incorporated by reference as a basis for discrimination under 1557, subsequently in 2016, the Obama administration took the position that uh, 1557 forbids discrimination based on gender identity as well. Uh, and they issued a ruling to that effect. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a, a regulation or a rule, but it was a, a formal interpretation that was adopted by the Obama administration immediately attacked in this lawsuit uh, by Franciscan Alliance, uh, together with the Christian Medical and Dental Society and the Specialty Physicians of Illinois, all organizations uh, that are religiously identified uh, organizations. Uh, Franciscan Alliance is an alliance of healthcare facilities in Indiana and Illinois, uh, which are self-identified as religious healthcare uh, facilities. Christian Medical and Dental Society has members all over the nation, and uh, it is basically people who identify as Christian and want to belong to this organization. And then the Specialty Physicians of Illinois also is a religiously uh, motivated organization. Wow, Art, I can't believe how well you summarized all of that backstory. It just goes to show that making law is messy and difficult and complicated. And so can you talk a little bit about these plaintiffs and uh, how the refusal to provide access to transgender health care uh, is the purpose for this challenge? So they all came in there and they said the Obama administration can't require us to uh, perform uh, uh, gender conversions and surgery, etc. Uh, it violates our religious, uh, our religious uh, convictions. And so they filed suit and they did uh, the ultimate in forum shopping. The uh, US District Court for the Northern District of Texas has courthouses in various places because it's geographically huge. And one of them is Wichita Falls. And there's one judge of the court who's assigned to sit in Wichita Falls. And he's not even full time there. Uh, he's, he goes there uh, you know, several days a month to, to hold hearings. But that's Reed O'Connor, who was appointed to the district court by President Bush and who is pretty far to the right and who uh, had a tendency to issue uh, temporary restraining orders, preliminary injunctions uh, against Obama administration policies uh, in favor of the plaintiffs who had forum shopped into his court. And one of them that he issued uh, was a preliminary injunction against uh, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services and another one uh, ran against the Department of Education that they could not enforce the non-discrimination provisions on behalf of uh, people raising gender identity discrimination claims because he felt, he concluded that they, they had a likelihood of succeeding on their claim that uh, this was an incorrect interpretation of Title IX uh, and therefore it was uh, against the Administrative Procedure Act for them to have adopted this interpretation, uh, made other various uh, procedural claims under the Administrative Procedure Act, and also uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, the idea 
that if enforcing a federal law, if the government enforcing a federal law against a private party would burden their religious practice or their religious beliefs, uh, it would be subjected to strict scrutiny. This was a Congress's way of getting around the Supreme Court's decision in Employment Division versus Smith, which uh, would basically eliminate the possibility of them making First Amendment arguments here in attacking uh, federal laws of general application. Uh, so he, he issued a preliminary injunction back then. And uh, then uh, the Trump administration came into office and they said, you know, we, you don't really need this preliminary injunction because we're not going to enforce 1557 in gender identity discrimination cases. We're going to uh, retract or revoke the Obama administration interpretation and we're going to replace it with a new rule. Uh, and so on that basis, uh, the case which had been appealed by the Obama administration to the Fifth Circuit was sort of put on hold. And then the Fifth Circuit sent it back uh, to, uh, to O'Connor. Uh, and then, of course, the Trump administration issued its new rule in June of 2020. But ironically, its new rule was published in the Federal Register just days after the Supreme Court decided Bostock. And in Bostock, they said under Title VII, the ban on sex discrimination and employment includes gender identity discrimination claims. They said it's impossible to discriminate based on gender identity without taking account of the sex. Of the, of the discrimination victim. And therefore it's uh, at least in part sex discrimination and it comes up to Title VII. And uh, the Trump administration's reaction to that was to say that is a very narrow ruling. It just applies to Title VII. Uh, sometimes they even said it just applies to discharge cases because the three cases that were consolidated in that case, two involving gay men and one involving a transgender woman were employment discharge cases. So they said that, okay, that ruling should be uh, limited to its facts and it shouldn't apply to anything else. And it doesn't apply to Title IX. It doesn't apply to the housing discrimination. It doesn't apply to any other law that covers sex discrimination. And even as to Title VII, it only applies to discharges. They, they claimed it a few points. Uh, and so they were undeterred. Uh, they issued that thing just days after the Bostock decision. So there's this new rule. And now, uh, you know, the issue is uh, what rule applies here? Uh, because Trump issued this new rule. And while that new rule was in effect, it immediately attracted uh, litigation against it. And we'll be discussing one of those cases uh, later in this segment of the podcast. Uh, but, you know, what was there for Judge O'Connor to do then? Well, what happened, of course, is the rule came out in June. In November, Trump was beat at the polls by Biden, although he still has not conceded that he lost the election, really. Uh, and of course, on his first day in office, Biden issued an executive order saying the Bostock decision should be consulted for interpreting all federal sex discrimination laws, including Title IX. And of course, by including Title IX, you were including Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. And ultimately, the Department of Health and Human Services now says that they're following the Bostock decision and uh, that it violates uh, Title IX for uh, doctors or healthcare institutions to refuse to uh, provide healthcare to people because of their gender identity. But in the meantime, uh, the plaintiffs in Franciscan Alliance say, well, now the Biden administration has basically reinstated the Obama administration's policy. And we don't think they can do that without going through a new uh, rulemaking procedure 
uh, for one thing. And uh, for another thing, we think it violates our rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So they renewed their motion. Uh, and at this point, it's whether they get a permanent injunction. And on August 9th, Judge O'Connor issued a permanent injunction. The permanent injunction bars the federal government from enforcing Section 1557 against the plaintiffs. Yeah, wow, I can't believe it's just limited to the plaintiffs here, given the uh, history O'Connor has of issuing sweeping injunctions nationwide. Uh, thank goodness he didn't go for a national injunction here that applies to everybody. Now, this is a this is a significant restriction in that sense on the government's enforcement activities. But something to keep in mind, of course, it is it only applies to the plaintiffs enforcement against the plaintiffs at this point. It's not a preliminary injunction. It's a final injunction. So the Biden administration can appeal it to the Fifth Circuit. It's a final ruling or alternatively look for a ruling on the merits. Uh, and uh, take it to the Supreme Court, depending on what the Fifth Circuit does. The Fifth Circuit is uh, fairly conservative on LGBT issues. Oh, yeah, well, that's an understatement. Um, so why don't you take us to the other case that we report in Law Notes um, in Massachusetts? We report on a uh, decision issued uh, nine days later on August 18th by U.S. District Judge Patty V. Saris in the District of Massachusetts. Uh, she was appointed by President Clinton, so she's been there for a while. Uh, and uh, this is one of the half dozen cases pending around the country, which are challenging the 2020 Trump administration rule. And uh, the Trump administration people, uh, they uh, filed a motion to dismiss, and then there's a change of administration. But the motion to dismiss is there, and it, it was, of course, briefed and argued from the Trump administration people. And uh, so they're claiming that there's no cause of action stated in this challenge. Now, the uh, plaintiffs are a whole coalition of uh, organizations that provide health care services to the LGBTQ community, uh, and also uh, some people who provide uh, reproductive care and abortion services, because that's also covered by the Trump rule. Uh, and there are already some preliminary injunctions issued by other federal district courts on various aspects of the rule. Uh, and so Judge Saris took the position, if a provision is already enjoined elsewhere, I don't have to pay attention to that. I will just pay attention to the provisions that haven't been preliminary enjoined yet, uh, because there is a, a motion for preliminary injunction by the plaintiffs at the same time as there's a motion to dismiss. What she's saying is uh, she's granting the motion to dismiss as to certain provisions uh, which are challenged, but she finds none of the plaintiffs have standing to challenge them. Uh, and none of them are really uh, too substantive, except uh, the 2020 rule eliminated a prohibition on uh, discrimination based on association. But uh, she denied the government's motion on several key points. Uh, one of the things that the Trump administration tried to do in this 2020 rule was to narrow its coverage by saying that it only applied to people who actually provide health care. It doesn't apply to insurance companies. The Obama administration had interpreted Section 1557 to apply to insurance companies that they can't discriminate by categorically excluding coverage for, for example, uh, gender identity related healthcare. 
So the importance of the August 18 ruling is that the challenge to uh, some of these provisions are alive. So uh, what we have here is a very live case. And there's this extraordinary coalition of groups uh, among the plaintiffs. So that's where we stand. And then we have all those other cases around the country. So, you know, as those rulings come out, we report on them in law notes. And uh, to the extent that they make significant substantive contributions, we'll talk about them on the podcast in the future. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm surprised to hear that, um, you know, Judge Reed O'Connor did not issue a more sweeping ruling that applied beyond the plaintiffs in this challenge. I'm uh, not surprised that it lacks some analysis, and I'm certainly not hopeful that the Fifth Circuit, we've talked about, you know, Reed O'Connor as, as a notorious judge. We've also talked about James Ho uh, on the Fifth Circuit, who has misgendered, dead-named um, uh, transgender plaintiffs who have come uh, up on appeal before the Fifth Circuit. Kyle Duncan is the same way. Uh, these are notoriously anti-transgender uh, judges who were appointed by President Trump. So, of course, not particularly hopeful about the Fifth Circuit reviewing this case. But thank you for keeping us up to date on it, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to do so. Let's go ahead and take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some criminal legal issues involved in a case out of uh, Texas again. All right, we're back, and we are going to talk about a case from El Paso relating to the conviction of a man who killed a transgender woman with whom he had made an online date. Um, this case is just one way for us to talk a little bit and look a little bit at some of the violence that impacts transgender people, particularly transgender women of color. I was looking at the latest statistics um, from HRC, and there were a total of 44 fatalities that were tracked by HRC in 2020, making it the most deadly year of violence uh, against transgender people on record since they'd been tracking this since 2013. And already here in 2021, there've been at least 35 transgender or gender nonconforming people who've been fatally shot or killed by violent means. And of course, this is underreported because in most cases we don't, there's misreporting about the gender identity of the individual. Um, so it's incredibly difficult to track, but Art, will you talk a little bit about this this case as we wrote, wrote as you wrote up for law notes? Yeah, and and we should warn people that there's there's some really uh, it's it's sort of impossible to discuss the case without discussing violence against the person, uh, regrettably. And uh, so the transgender woman uh, who who was using the male name Eric Tejerna, uh, but identified as a transgender woman. Uh, made a date with this fellow Anthony Bowden, who was a soldier stationed at Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, made a date online. And in fact, if Bowden's testimony can be believed, and there are all kinds of holes in his testimony, uh, or, or rather what he said in his confession, because uh, he ultimately did confess to a police detective that he had stabbed uh, Eric DeJerna to death. Uh, he, he claimed he met with her, with her twice. He claimed that he had met her through an internet uh, connection several weeks earlier, uh, that he didn't know that she was transgender. Uh, 
uh, came to her apartment and he claimed that she raped him. But he claimed that he was looking uh, once again for an assignation and someone using different photographs online. So he assumed it was a different person. And he went downstairs and got the chisel, came back and stabbed her to death. The coroner documented 24 stab wounds. But ultimately, a jury convicted him. I mean, the, he, he appealed to the Texas uh, Court of Appeals. He's trying to say, oh, it was self-defense. It was, I was afraid I was going to be raped again. Uh, it was brilliant detective work, which is uh, discussed in detail by the opinion about how they found him. Uh, all kinds of leads that they, because, you know, what happened was they found a body in an apartment stabbed to death. And there wasn't any immediate idea of who, who it might have been. But uh, a persistent detective was able to make the connections and ultimately they uh, brought him in for questioning. They read him his Miranda rights and he started talking. And he basically said that it was, it was self-defense. He admitted that he stabbed her to death, but it was self-defense, he said. It wasn't exactly a gay panic case. Uh, if, if, if he had uh, murdered her on the first occasion, if you believe there was a first occasion, because that's never been, been really confirmed, the first occasion when he was there. If it was uh, gay panic, then that's when, but maybe he didn't have a weapon. Who knows? Uh, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's important because we've never really discussed this issue uh, very much on the podcast. Uh, we, we tend to stare away from the criminal cases but uh, this gives us an opportunity to point out a case in which a jury convicted someone. They were sentenced, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison and a, a substantial fine authorized by statute. And uh, the uh, court affirmed that, didn't uh, change anything on it. This case, it's, it's fascinating to read. It's Bowdoin versus State of Texas. And uh, it's the Texas uh, Court of Appeals for the Eighth District in El Paso. Uh, for anyone who's interested in looking at it, it's available on Westlaw and Lexus and uh, probably will become available for people who don't have the legal research services that anyone can use uh, without a subscription, scholargoogle.com uh, to search for published court opinions. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Art, for talking about this case. And yes, it was certainly difficult to to read, it's difficult to talk about, but it's an important issue. And we don't really talk about criminal legal issues that often on this podcast, we have had opportunity to talk about the gay and trans panic defenses, particularly as they relate to legislative action. Um, here in New York, we only just eliminated gay and trans panic defenses, I believe two years ago. Um, and there are still jurisdiction states all across the country where we're working to get rid of them. These are basically defenses where someone will come into court and say, I committed this act of violence and I should get a lesser sentence because I panicked when I discovered this person was gay or trans. And so I should, you know, be excused um, in some way. Oh, well, basically yeah. reducing charges from homicide to manslaughter, which carries right. a much shorter sentence. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, so many cases, um, you know, going back where the gay panic or trans panic defenses were successfully used. So um, they're, they're really 
uh, legal relics that that we're working to get rid of. And I appreciate us being able to talk about this issue, Art. So let's go away from this. We'll talk about something a little bit lighter um, in our final segment, uh, which uh, you're going to allow me to talk about. Is that right? Right. Well, you wrote this one, so you'll take the lead on this one. All right. So uh, let's take a short break. And when we come back, I'll chat. All right, so we're back. Art, do you want to introduce this in a flip of the script versus me kind of introducing myself? <laughs> okay, well, one of the issues that we're still dealing with around the country is uh, discrimination against gay people when it comes to jury selection. Uh, and uh, if, if, they, uh, if they have a reason, if the attorney who wants to keep a, J, a gay person off the jury has a reason connected to the subject matter of the litigation, they may have cause. You know, it depends on the nature of the case and, and uh, whether they're relying on stereotypes about gay people as opposed to uh, something more directly uh, connected uh, to whether someone could be impartial as a juror. But uh, you know, the Supreme Court recognized a long time ago in the Batson case that uh, it violates the Constitution to categorically eliminate people from a jury because of their race, uh, and uh, even to use a peremptory challenge to eliminate someone. Uh, uh, in a peremptory challenge, they don't usually have to uh, identify why they're eliminating someone, so you're looking for patterns. Or uh, someone uses a peremptory because they challenge someone for cause and the judge won't grant it for cause, so they use one of their peremptories that certainly gives rise to uh, an inference that it was because of uh, the whether some the race or their sex or now uh, we're asking for sexual orientation uh, to be considered a category for this. And the Supreme Court uh, originally in Batson it was race, but they later expanded it uh, to sex on the ground that sex discrimination gets heightened scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause, which means you need a pretty good reason. To discriminate against someone under the heightened scrutiny standard. Under, if, if uh, you don't get heightened scrutiny on a particular category, it's just rational basis. And uh, then we're not going to put the burden on the individual to justify uh, excluding someone on that basis. So because the Supreme Court hasn't directly ruled yet on whether sexual orientation is a suspect or quasi-suspect classification, uh, there is controversy. There is still, it's still unsettled as a national issue uh, whether uh, using peremptories to keep gay people off a jury, uh, a pattern of peremptories, or singling out someone who you wanted to exclude uh, for cause and the judge won't let you exclude it for cause, so you, you exercise a peremptory, uh, whether sexual orientation should be treated like sex. And now we've got Bostock, which says that discrimination based on sexual orientation uh, involves sex discrimination. Uh, so where do we go with this? But, and we actually have cases pre-Bostock. We have, uh, well, you're gonna talk about the Ninth Circuit's case. Uh, so let, <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. Let, let, let you get into this now. All right, you kick it over to me, Art. But yeah, I think, I think you know, when before I was um, the executive director of Legal, I used to work at, as the Fair Courts Project Director at Lambda Legal, and we did a lot of work around not just making sure that um, LGBT people were able to serve um, equally in jury service, but also making sure that 
prospective jurors during voir dire weren't inadvertently outed during the process of questioning either by a judge or by opposing counsel. Unless unless you're a potential juror in Manhattan, in which case uh, jury duty is an opportunity to meet other gay men especially out of work uh, waiters and actors and things who tend to serve on juries. <laughs> <laughs> Is that frequent on, on Craigslist and the like? I've never heard that happen. Well, not on Craigslist, but I, I mean, my own experience on jury duty and I have friends who they, we always meet gay people on jury duty and you know we sort of bond with the gay people on the jury. <laughs> Okay, this is, I mean, I, this is not legal. Okay. <laughs> Take note on this. This is how, yes. how, uh, so, so gay people, you get a jury notice, you know, this is your chance. Art, thank you for your dating tips. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Okay, but let's get into the facts of the underlying case here um, to start out with. This is an issue of first impression for the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, uh, essentially, whether um, LGBT people are protected under the Constitution from being stricken from juries. Um, so we have the facts of the underlying case, which basically involve gang violence. There are uh, two defendants and then a third that they conspired with basically um, went to do some violence against another member of a different gang and shot up uh, the area, shot a bystander who was looking for his keys in the car. After two mistrials on both occasions due to deadlock juries, um, there were convictions for these defendants. Um, the case comes to the Supreme Judicial Court on appeal where the defendants allege in relevant part to law notes in this podcast that the judge at trial abused their discretion by allowing racial discrimination to infect the jury pool and in the issue of first impression uh, allow a juror to be struck on the basis of sexual orientation as well. So as you basically summarized art and by way of background, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and uh, an article of the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights prohibit a party from exercising peremptory challenges on the basis of race. But with respect to the sexual orientation claim, uh, the defendants are, are, are contending that um, the judge was required to ask the prosecutor to provide a neutral explanation for striking a potentially gay person from the jury. Interestingly, the prosecution here does not argue that, you know, Batson shouldn't apply to sexual orientation discrimination, but rather that in this instance, there was insufficient evidence that the juror was actually gay. Um, so basically, in the facts below, the judge was asking her to clarify her household status, gave her a list of options, single, married, domestic partner, separated, um, to which the juror answered domestic partner. Um, and after noting that the phrase domestic partner was used um, to refer to both heterosexual and gay persons, the trial judge ultimately denied the challenge because, in her opinion, sexual orientation was not protected. So now that issue is on appeal before the Massachusetts High Court, and they use three factors to decide uh, that Batson does indeed uh, prevent sexual orientation discrimination. First, citing Obergefell and v. Hodges and Lawrence v. Texas for the principle that gay people have suffered historic 
pernicious discrimination and citing Bostock for the, the principle that they continue to face uh, discrimination in modern times. Second, this is further uh, citing Bostock, um, they found that a person's sexual orientation is inextricably bound up with sex. And of course, sex is already one of the grounds that's prohibited uh, for discriminating against uh, ju prospective jurors. Third, the court noted that uh, in line with the Ninth Circuit opinion that we referenced earlier in a case called Smith-Klein-Beacham v. Abbott Labs, that um, most simply a prospective juror's sexual orientation is not at all relevant to whether the person is able to serve as an impartial juror. What's interesting about the case in the Ninth Circuit was the timing at which that was decided. Um, the court was looking at the issue right before uh, the Supreme Court issued their opinion in U.S. v. Windsor, um, and they held off uh, to see basically whether Windsor was going to apply heightened scrutiny uh, to claims involving sexual orientation. Um, so this uh, case came down essentially right after Windsor trying to decipher what it was that Windsor was doing um, and ultimately protected and extended Batson to sexual orientation claims. I think it's also important to look at some of the really strong language that the court uses to recognize how important jury service is um, to individuals, to society, to the system of justice, and how pernicious it is to prevent um, a marginalized group um, from participating based on um, their characteristics. And so uh, it's very strong language. It's a really positive uh, decision. It's an important one, as you will note from the um, representation here. Um, there's Ethan Rice and Richard Sines, friends of this podcast and former colleagues at Lambda Legal. There's Mary Buenado and Gary Busick of GLAD, um, all uh, working to make sure that this principle is embedded in Massachusetts, um, both at, at, under their constitutional provisions and the federal constitution. Ultimately, uh, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court reversed what the district court judge below, finding that yes, uh, you know, sexual orientation is protected under the Massachusetts Constitution and under the federal constitution. But uh, the court did not find that the judge committed reversible era, error in this uh, instance. Um, ultimately, because there was insufficient evidence to show that the juror was actually gay which is interesting in the sense that, you know, perception of uh, striking a juror based on their perceived sexual orientation is certainly as pernicious as um, their actual sexual orientation. So uh, an interesting outcome here, but uh, it's definitely a significant uh, ruling and an important one. The easiest way to get this would be to get the Supreme Court to finally say that sexual orientation is a quasi, at least a quasi suspect classification that should be treated the same as sex. I, it seems to me that this is such a logical implication of the reasoning in the Bostock case. Uh, but uh, it, it may be a while before we get enough lower courts to embrace it. Uh, some have begun to, and to say, uh, certainly in cases of gender identity, we have quite a few decisions now saying heightened scrutiny, sexual orientation. We also have some heightened scrutiny cases from the courts of appeals. Uh, so we're, we're building a body of precedent now, and that should carry over to the uh, jury selection process.
because the Batson standard, as uh, amplified in the subsequent cases, is if a category gets heightened scrutiny, then you can't use a peremptory to eliminate people on that basis. And certainly, if you're a if you're a lawyer in one of these jurisdictions that hasn't looked at this issue yet, um, like Massachusetts hadn't before now, um, you should certainly be making these argue, arguments and challenging strikes that are exercised on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, and if if you need help doing so, please see one of these groups, uh, Lambda Legal or Glad, and they'll help you out. Art, do you have an of note for us? I always have an of note for us. Okay. So, uh, and, and this is a, a sort of speculative looking forward of note, uh, but it's the lead article actually in, in this issue. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom has filed a cert petition with the Supreme Court on August 2nd uh, in a case from the state of Washington, Seattle's Union Gospel Mission versus Woods. Uh, and this is, this is one of their sort of brazen attempts to expand religious exemptions from anti-discrimination law. There's a, a young guy, uh, in this case, Matthew Woods, who identifies as a Christian. Uh, and of course, Seattle's Union Gospel Mission is a Christian association that among other things, maintains uh, a uh, legal services uh, operation to serve homeless people. It's called Open Door Legal Services. And he volunteered there as a law student. And they had an opening for a staff attorney. He decided to apply. He was encouraged to apply. And he felt that he had to be open about his own identity. He said to them, well, I'm, I'm a bisexual man. And uh, they said, well, you know, what does that mean? He, he said, well, I can see myself marrying another man someday. He said, OK, we can't hire you. He said, what do you mean you can't hire me? I'm hiring to be a staff lawyer. Uh, and uh, this is in a state, the state of Washington, that forbids sexual orientation discrimination and employment. And you know, now we know uh, since Bostock uh, that so does Title VII. Uh, and so he filed suit against them. And the Washington State Supreme Court held that uh, the uh, open door legal services did not have a right to discriminate against him because of his sexual orientation as a bisexual man. Uh, and Alliance Defending Freedom wants the Supreme Court to take this case up and to hold that uh, the ban against sex discrimination or sexual orientation discrimination must give way to the rights of the religious organization to enforce their doctrine on their employees. In other words, there, there's already, for example, under Title VII, there's a co-religionist exemption from uh, the statute to this extent that religious organizations are allowed to prefer members of their own religion for employment. Okay, uh, so they're allowed to discriminate based on religion, but that doesn't mean they're allowed to discriminate based on sex or sexual orientation or age or race or color, or any of the other categories, the exemption only extends to sex. The one exception for that, of course, is hiring ministers, the so-called ministerial exception. Uh, and so they want to sort of expand the ministerial exception and the religious institution exemption and basically say that uh, when it comes to employment discrimination, religious organizations are just totally exempt from the requirements of these employment discrimination laws uh, based on their uh, First Amendment rights. So uh, they, this is the cert petition is another attempt 
among other things, to give the court a vehicle to overrule Employment Division versus Smith and to reinstate uh, claims of religious discrimination to be exempted from general laws of general application. Uh, and if not that, then to open up a religious exemption from employment discrimination law entirely. Uh, the ministerial exemption already does that for ministerial employees, but I don't think they can claim that someone who's going to be a staff attorney at the legal services organization is a ministerial employee. They're hired to pro provide legal representation to poor people and to advise them of their rights. They're not hired to preach to them and uh, to uh, communicate church doctrine. So, uh, uh, you know, will this, or does this have any chance of being granted? Who knows? ADF has a pretty good track record on getting cert petitions granted. And we've got uh, a pretty large religious uh, majority on the Supreme Court that are into exemptions, as we saw. I mean, you know, we haven't, the only Supreme Court case we won in the last few years really is Bostock. Uh, the other cases, which uh, from some point of view should have been slam dunks, Masterpiece Cake Shop and uh, Fulton at the city of Philadelphia, we lost. Uh, they didn't overrule Employment Division versus Smith, which we thought they would have to do to rule against us in those cases. They figured out ways to get around that, you know, that, uh, that, that a, uh, a state commissioner expressed hostility to religion in the Masterpiece case. And that's a make weight in this case. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom says the Washington Supreme Court exhibited hostility to religion in some of what it said in its opinion. Uh, and, uh, you know, in Fulton, in Fulton, there's also an aspect of hostility to religion and not explaining why you allow other uh, foster care agencies to uh, engage in categorical discrimination on grounds covered by your anti-discrimination laws, but not the Catholic agency when it comes to sexual orientation. Uh, you know, they figure out a way to rule in favor of a religious exemption, uh, but sort of masking it in a way. Uh, it's, it's like they're nibbling away at the, at the principle of employment division versus Smith until they get a case where they can find a majority to overrule it. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, this, uh, but, you know, at this point, we don't have our Supreme Court LGBT rights case for the term yet, for the term that starts in October. We've got some cert petitions, this one uh, among them, and we'll see what happens when the court holds this long session at the end of September where it reviews all the cert petitions from the summer and uh, announces a lot of cert grants usually. So we'll see what happens. This may be on the calendar for the Supreme Court. And of course, if it is, we will keep folks updated. Art, I actually have an of note for you. Um, today, as we're recording this on the 14th, the uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee is considering advancing President Biden's nomination of Vermont Supreme Court Justice Beth Robinson to the Second Circuit. Um, if she is confirmed, uh, Justice Robinson would become the first openly LGBTQ person to serve uh, on a federal appellate court anywhere in the country. So that's certainly significant. Uh, folks who listen to this podcast may know uh, Justice Robinson as a civil rights attorney who was instrumental in the freedom to marry litigation very early on and was one of the attorneys behind uh, Baker v. Uh, State of Vermont, which uh, basically resulted in civil unions in Vermont. So that's certainly significant, and uh, we'll continue to keep you updated on judicial nominations. Definitely. That's All a right. 
Well, you have any fun travel plans coming up or are you all settled in and actually once the semester starts, I mean, I'm going, I'm going to upstate New York for my 50th high school reunion. Oh, wow. <laughs> up, so I'll be in Oneonta for a few days. That's where I went to high school. Oh, fantastic. My, my father was a professor at the state college there. Cool. Uh, so uh, it'll be nice to see old friends. That's fantastic. Old well, friends. it's always good to see you, old friend, and we'll be back next month with the with the next edition of the podcast. Thank you so much, Art. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, please like us, leave us a comment, uh, leave us five stars. It's how other people discover us. We will be back soon.